I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Did you turn off your mail? I will close it right now. All right. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining me here on Repin. I'm Evelyn, your host. And today we have an amazing story about survival, grit and strength in the afternoon of June 24th, 2002. My guest, who was only 15 at the time, was kidnapped and assaulted for hours by a man that would later turn out to be a serial killer. We're gonna hear about her astounding tenacity, heightened awareness, incredible composure and smarts that she had to rely on in order to survive. But you'll also hear how she was able to help authorities capture her abductor. She's gonna share how she's transformed that trauma and pain into power for herself and how she's using that to help others. This. This is an incredible discussion about survival and how one can manage and move past traumas and really hardships of all kinds. So sit back and hold on tight because we've got Kara Robinson Chamberlain. Kara, how are you? I am doing great this morning. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much 
for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. You are somebody that I really wanted to talk with you because I find you to be just an extraordinary human being for many reasons. But before we start, why don't you tell listeners a little bit about your experience? Because I don't feel like it's my position to say anything. So let us know a little bit about your background and how the public may know you. If someone recognizes my name, they may recognize me because when I was 15 years old, I was kidnapped by someone that I later found out was a serial killer. The quick recap of that is I was a normal 15-year-old who never really experienced any crime, nothing super traumatic, and I was outside a friend's house watering her plants. We were getting ready to leave for the day when a stranger pulled into the driveway and told me he was distributing pamphlets, which was not true. But he entered my personal space to give me those. At that point, he also put a gun to the side of my neck and told me to go with him. He put me in a container in the back of his car, took me to his apartment. I was there for 18 hours, and he sexually assaulted me multiple times. And I was there, like I said, for 18 hours until I was able to escape which was always my plan and always my goal. It was always to escape. And knowing that I wanted to escape, my plan was to earn his trust, get him to be complacent at some point so that I would be able to escape and also to gather as much information as I could about him so that I could identify him when I escaped. So I was able to do that when I escaped from his apartment. I went to law enforcement. I gave them information that helped to identify him. I actually went back to the apartment complex, gave the information to a man who worked at the apartment complex, and he pretty much immediately identified the apartment. By the time police responded, my captor was gone. He was found a few days later by tracking his cell phone. I lived in South Carolina during all of this. He was found in Florida. He was going to meet his sister. So law enforcement attempted to intercept that, set up a meeting, at which point he ran. They deployed stop sticks to burst the tires and kind of spun out of control. They sent in a canine and he ended up shooting himself right there on the side of the road in Sarasota, Florida. After my captor left his apartment, law enforcement went in, they searched his apartment, they found a locked footlocker with some information that led them to believe that he may be responsible for some murders that were five and six years previous in Virginia. He was actually positively identified as the person responsible for those three murders in Virginia. That's the quick version of why people may know me as being someone who escaped at 15 from a serial killer. The experience that you just recapped is crazy. It's straight up crazy. It's a lot to unpack. Yeah, that's an understatement. Let's break this down for just a second. A, you're 15. When I was 15, I was just trying to get to the mall to hang out. The wherewithal that you had when you're in this situation that would, I think, send anyone in a panic regardless of what age. What did you have to do to get that presence of mind to say, oh, let me compartmentalize my emotions, which is, I would imagine, sheer panic. Because even if there was a fire, I would be in a panic. You're being abducted at 15. First question. Second question, you're able to compartmentalize your emotions to devise a plan. I think those two things are huge. The ability to compartmentalize this alarm and panic 
to say to yourself, okay, I'm going to come up with a plan and to figure out what that plan is. And if I remember correctly, you try to remember the way the car was turning. Yeah. I just need to tell you, I get lost with a GPS. <laughs> yeah. How did you do both those parts? Because those components are huge in normal circumstances and you are in a five alarm situation. Yeah. Here's the secret. The secret is we all have it within us because it's how our bodies react to stress. Our bodies have this amazing system within it that responds to stress. And they've kind of renamed it to fight, flight, freeze, or appease. I was more or less in that appease state. So the appease is, okay, I'm just going to go along with what he wants me to do so that he becomes complacent, so that he lets his guard down a little bit so I will be able to escape. But inside of me, because I'm by nature a very stubborn person, there was the fight, right? So the fight side of me was, okay, I refuse to give him what he wants, which is to cry and be upset and panic. Again, my survival mechanism was, okay, we can't handle that. So let's shut that down. There was never a conscious decision, which is a, an important thing to note when we're talking about stressful situations and traumas is that you don't have any control over how you react. I don't have a good memory. I will tell you that now. Ask my husband because he will tell you, I don't remember anything. <laughs> I will say words out of my face and five minutes later, he'll say, remember when you said, I'm like, no, I never said that. <laughs> my memory is terrible, but stress can do some really crazy things. For me, that's where it came from. It came from my body's stress coping mechanism. It's just like when you hear women who lift cars off of their children. You get these superpowers almost under stress because your body directs all of its energy into survival. We as humans are very resilient creatures that are made to survive. All of my energy was going to survival. And for me, that meant compartmentalization. It meant memorize all of these things. It meant appease him so that I will have a way to escape. Okay. I agree with you. <laughs> Everyone has the fight or flight mode, right? Right. But not everybody is able to kick into the fight mode. A lot of people just revert into the the, the freeze, oh my God, mode. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, I mean, again, you're 15. The situation you were put in being abducted literally by a serial killer, Yeah, that would make, I think, the most stoic person, frankly, pee their pants. So yes, granted, the fight or flight is in all of us. But are you saying that people may have a choice to choose fight or flight or does it just kick in? No, it just automatically kicks in. It very much is automatic. Yeah. Then for people who may not have the ability to kick it in the way you do or the way you did or still do, what is your advice? What was going through your 15-year-old brain? Because when I got trapped in an elevator, girlfriend, I'm not even going to lie to you. I was not doing well. You will respond to every situation differently. So you can be in 15 traumatic situations and you may experience your fight or flight system differently in every single situation. I think people want to know what would you do differently or what advice would you give someone? And it's very difficult because you can look at people that are trained to respond well to stress, right? So let's think of a Navy SEAL or someone that special forces. Those people go through a lot of training 
so that they can overcome their autonomic nervous system because it's autonomic. Right. That fight or flight, it's automatic. Yeah. You don't really have a lot of control. You don't have choice, so girl. Yeah. You don't. So the only way that you can overcome it is through massive amounts of training. And even that, it's no guarantee. It's just because those people have been put into stressful situations where they have triggered it and they have overcome it multiple times that they are able to overcome it when they are then placed into, you know, the ultimate trial. How do you do it? Luck. (laughs) Okay. So here's my thing, and I don't want to rehash this too much. You were 15 again, which is still astonishing to me because I don't think that even full grown adults would have the wherewithal or the survival mechanism, or as you called it, stubbornness to have the presence of mind to do what you did. Now, you were assaulted for 18 hours in this guy's house. What was going on internally that kept you calm enough to have? the presence of mind to calculate and to be strategic about what you were doing and what you were saying. I'm sure you had multiple questions and doubt that you were going to survive this. Can you tell me a moment where it was very difficult for you and how you processed whatever was happening at that particular time? And how did you turn that corner? I will tell you pretty much the entire time I was there, it was almost like there was this mantra going on in my head, like gather information wait for him to become complacent, find a time to escape. So that was what grounded me. It's almost certain types of yoga where you have a mantra and it helps to put you in this meditative state. I did pray a lot while I was there and just prayed that I would be able to find an opportunity to escape. That's not to say that I was completely calm and completely compartmentalized and desensitized the entire time. There was one time specifically when my captor told me he was going to make a phone call and he put me back into the container and he put the gag in my mouth and he said, you can't make any sound. And he put the lid on the container and I actually started to hyperventilate. I felt like I couldn't breathe. And so my mantra then became, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And I genuinely thought I was going to die in that moment. I thought I was going to suffocate. So he came in and he said, you know, what's going on here? You can't make noise. And I told him I I couldn't breathe. And he said, okay, I'll take the gag out of your mouth. You just have to remember, I will have a weapon and there will be punishment. That was one of his rules. You will either be rewarded or punished while you are here. It depends on your behavior. I said, I won't make any noise. And so he took the gag out of my mouth and he just placed a blanket over the top. So that allowed me to calm back down. He also gave me a Valium at that point. So that helped a lot as well. Yes, I would imagine it would. Yes. Yeah. From there, did it reinforce your idea and plan of staying as calm as you possibly can and to continue information gathering? Correct me if I'm wrong. You even remembered the magnets on his refrigerator and like the numbers of his dentist and doctors. That's insane, Kara. It is insane. I agree. Okay, cool. (laughs) Yeah. In that moment that he gave you what you wanted, did that sort of confirm your strategy? Yeah. I think we hear all of these stories about the very sadistic serial killers that are out there that are being very harmful. And he wasn't that. So it made it almost a little bit easier for me to gain his trust because the way he spoke to me in between those moments of assaulting me was friendly, which is like the weirdest thing to say. But 
for the most part, and I'm going to use air quotes, he was nice. So it was easy for me to compartmentalize those moments of the bad things that were happening and then go right back to, okay, so let's just keep trying to be his friend and let's keep trying to let him know I'm not a threat and I'm going along with everything. Then maybe, you know, he'll put the gun a little bit further because I did have a moment at one point when I was being assaulted that there was a weapon beside me. There was a gun beside me that he had put down. And I thought, if I took it right now, and I shot him, I could escape. But then I also realized that I was 15 years old, I was about 105, 110 pounds, and this was a full grown man, I had no chance of fighting him off. So I kind of put that plan on the back burner, and then went back to the original plan. Thank God. I'm really glad that you're here. Some of the, the research that I've done, you were tied to the bed and I think he was sleeping. How on earth did you get out of your restraints to run out of the house? You just brought up this gun situation because you're weighing your options, your risks, right? Yeah. No matter what situation you're in at that particular circumstance, your risks are like off the charts. Yeah. So first, how did you get out of your restraints and what was going on internally that this was the chance that you had to take? This was the risk that you had to take versus the gun that you decided not to grab and overpower him? You know, I always assumed that when he was sleeping, that would be my best opportunity that he would be the most complacent. So when I woke up and he was very much still asleep, I thought this has to be it. I started with trying to um, undo my handcuffs. So I couldn't slide my hands out. There was what they call a quick link, which is like a carabiner with a screw on it. Okay. And that was around the handcuffs that were on my wrists. And then there was a rope that was tied basically to the frame of the bed. So I tried to unscrew the quick link with my fingers and couldn't do that. So I actually had to get it up to my mouth and use my teeth to unscrew the quick link. Then I slid the handcuffs out of that quick link and he's still sleeping. So this is all done very slowly. No sudden movements because he's right beside me. And I think it was a queen size bed. It's not a very large bed. Then I was able to squeeze one of my hands out of the handcuffs and I had a restraint on my right leg that was tied to the foot of the bed and disconnected the carabiners that were connecting the leg restraint to the foot of the bed and then slid out of bed. That was when I found my shorts. I had on one of his t-shirts. I think I had a pair of underwear on. Found my shorts. I had no shoes on, nothing else that I came with and went to the front door where it was more or less barricaded. So the plastic container was there in the foyer. And then there was like a coat closet with a metal accordion door, like a very noisy kind of situation. Very small apartment, like less than 600 square feet, probably. There was also like things hanging out of the closet. And he's literally on the other side of the wall from where this front door is. He's Yeah, he's sleeping in the bed beside the window that looks out on the front door. This is literally like a scene out of a horror movie. It was because I got out of the bed and I was like, okay, great, let's go. And then I got to the front door and it was like, (sighs) more stuff. And there are a couple of moments like that throughout the process. And so I unlocked the door, unlocked all the locks, and then shoved everything in with my left hand and shut the door and 
the uh, closet door and then threw open the front door like all at once and just ran out. I just knew that woke him up, right? There's no way he slept through that. It was very noisy. I just knew he was going to wake up. He was going to grab the gun beside him, look out the window and see me running and shoot me. I just knew he was going to shoot me in the back. But I thought, so what? I'm out. Someone will see me. They will find him. It doesn't even matter. Like I'm out of his apartment. Yeah. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. So I saw a car driving across the parking lot flagged it down, ran out in front of it. And there were two men inside. I held my hand up because I still had handcuffs dangling from one of my wrists and said, I was kidnapped. And I escaped from that apartment and pointed at the apartment and said, please remember that apartment. Because I had too many things that were just like crammed into my brain. I was like, I don't know this apartment complex. So they took me to law enforcement where I ran in by myself. Apparently they did not go in with me. They also did not remember the apartment. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that was another moment where I was like, come on. (laughs) Are you kidding me? The investigator that came, he said, okay, well, you know, do you think you would be okay going back to the apartment to try to identify which one you came out of? I said, they all look the same. There's no way I'm going to know where I came out of. Like The guys know. He's like, yeah, they don't. Oh, my God. You must have been orbital at that point. I was pretty upset. Kara, in your defense, you had a lot going on. Let me ask you this. From that horrible, unimaginable experience, what did you learn about yourself? And how have you continued to apply that to your life? And then I'm going to get to what you're doing to help others. I think the answer is going to be a little different than what you would expect. I don't expect anything, girl. Okay. I was told very often that I was very strong and that became an identity for me. That seems like a positive thing, but for me, it became something that was negative. I say that to say that anything that becomes a label that we internalize can be negative. To demonstrate that, I will tell you, I compartmentalized I had no emotion and still don't have a ton of emotion that is tied to my kidnapping and my assault. 
for a long, long time. So I told myself, I'm not affected by this. For 15 years, I said, this didn't affect me because I'm strong. It didn't affect me in a negative way. So anytime we define ourselves as any one thing, it can be positive or negative. I find this to be so interesting because one of the many thread throughs of my podcast is about not being categorized as one thing. Human beings, we can be all different things and conflicting things all at once. And labels are dangerous. But I had never thought that identifying yourself as strong would actually be a negative thing. Now, I understand that it is nuanced. And in some ways, thank God you disassociated a little bit from your trauma. Because yeah. I can't imagine what you went through and then how you continue to live with it. You can't unlive your experiences. Right. You can't unfeel them. You can't forget them. But having said that, what you just said made my head spin because I had never considered that identifying yourself as strong would be actually a negative thing. Can you expand upon that? Yeah. If we think about it, we just are so complex that any time you just pick one thing and you hone in on it, it can become negative. For me, being strong meant I'm not affected by my trauma, which trauma at its core affects us. That's what it does. But I said, I'm not affected by this. And then ultimately that began to develop into this, well, I'm strong, so I can't be affected and I can't cry. I remember being very like emotional as a child. I remember watching The Fox and the Hound. That must have come out when I was eight and just crying my eyeballs out. I just was so out of touch with my emotions, also because that had been my stress coping mechanism that had been imprinted very often when we experience trauma, especially at a young age. However, we deal with that trauma is then later how we deal with any other stressors. So when I was a young mom, I had two little boys. My husband was out of the country. My stress coping mechanism was to not feel feelings, not cry, not ask for help. I was doing all of that because I was strong, right. because I didn't need help. And then I realized, hey, it's actually a different kind of strength to say, I was affected by this and here's how it affected me. And to really be authentic with people about my journey and what it looks like, because I think that we have this idea of what trauma looks like, you know, the, the law and order SVU effect. We think that people are going to respond yeah. in a certain way. And I have other friends that are survivors that we've kind of tossed this idea around. Well, what if I don't want to be strong? What if that's not what I want? What's your answer to that? If I don't want to be strong? The sort of principle that is lorded over all of us is being strong is great. Again, one of my many thread throughs of this podcast that I hope to talk about is that Labels are usually narrow and they put us in specific boxes that either allow or deny us opportunities and places in this world and that we shouldn't label people. And here I'm thinking, you know, strength is a great thing and you're totally making my head spin. So for those who just don't want to be strong, we all have moments where we just don't want to be strong. We don't want to deal with it. What is your solution to reconciling? I guess some of the guilt when you say, oh, I don't want to be strong because it feels like you're just giving up. I think that very often we as a society see hard feelings as a weakness 
And we try to avoid feeling hard things. We try to prevent our children from feeling hard things. No. You know, oh, well, everyone was a winner. It's like, no, there's some importance in being able to navigate hard feelings and remembering that every emotion that you feel, you can feel it and it can run its course. It doesn't have to control you. Right. So like when an emotion comes up, you recognize it. You say, oh, wow, I'm feeling very overwhelmed or I'm feeling very sad or I'm feeling really, really angry right now. Okay, why am I feeling that way? And trying to figure it out and not getting stuck in it, because just because you don't feel like being strong, it doesn't mean that you're weak. Love that. You don't have to immediately become the opposite. There's so much in there and strength can look so different saying, I think, I don't want to be strong. I think that's its own kind of strength, right? Because vulnerability and authenticity are a totally different kind of strength. I think just kind of living in your emotions and accepting that emotions are okay. They're not good or bad. They just are. (laughs) You don't have to be a trauma survivor to, to apply some of the things that you're talking about. Just being a human being and experiencing all the hardships of life and Life is really messy and it doesn't make sense sometimes. I think the things that you're sharing are so universal. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to put words in your mouth. I think that anything that we go through, the good, the bad, and the freaking ugly, all make us who we are today. Yes. You don't lose it. You don't forget it. You can't delete it no matter how hard you try. It just becomes part of who you are for good, for the better, for the worse, whatever. Can you talk about what you're continuing to do on the forefront? Because I know you're still such an advocate for so many different people on many different fronts. You're using your experience. It's become your person. How are you using your lessons to help others? I love what you said about how we don't get to take away that experience and that life is messy. And as humans, we go through difficult things. I think kind of the backbone of a lot of what I do and what I come back to very often is that we all go through hard things. Yeah. I remember very vividly, very early in me putting content on TikTok, someone asking, well, how did you get over what happened? And I said, well, you don't get over it. You just get through it. It becomes part of who you are. You know, people want to say, oh, Kara is strong. She's a survivor. I'm like, there is so much more to me than that. Just because something difficult happens, you don't have to be defined by that. There was a moment when my captor said to me, when I'm finished with you, I'm going to release you somewhere that you won't know where you are. And it's your choice whether you go to law enforcement. You're always known as the girl who was raped. And I kind of come back to that very often as I don't want to just be that girl. I want to be more. I am more. Maybe that's why I kind of harp on it so much. That's me taking something that was negative and me taking ownership of it. So I don't have to be defined by him and what he told me, the things that happened to me. I get to pick up what I want from that situation and I get to move forward with it. So instead of being defined by it, I get to be refined by it. I can say, you know, this thing that happened to me was something that was difficult, but guess what? I would never be right here talking to you. I would never be doing any of the things that I do without that thing that happened. And listen, I never would have met my husband. I wouldn't have the children that I have. My life would be totally different. 
So for me to say that I'm defined by that thing that happened, or that I'm sorry that that thing happened, would just be so ungrateful for this amazing life that I live. That's kind of the backbone and the premise of everything that I do. I just try to be real and authentic and showing people what this looks like, how I am complex. You know, I am a survivor and I talk about that and I talk about how to overcome trauma. But listen, I also like really weird stuff. Like I like roller skating. You know, I'm also really into fitness. You're really into TikTok. TikTok is just fun. Like it brings me joy. And that's part of my journey recently is like, what are the things that bring me joy? Because I have childhood amnesia and amnesia about just everything that happened from, I would say, my teens and before. So I don't know how to find childhood joy. What do I like? I don't know. I like reading and I like playing video games and I like roller skating. Do you think some of that is because of your trauma that you experienced that you're just mentally blocking some of it out? Yes. And I think I, I did not necessarily have an idyllic, happy childhood. I had, a, you know, have great parents. They did the best that I could, but I had a somewhat chaotic childhood. You are using probably one of the most traumatic and horrific experiences that anyone can go through. And it has become a source of empowerment and strength. You have used it not only for yourself in terms of grounding you and understanding all parts of you. And I love that you didn't just stop there. You are using this to empower and help others, you know, educating other victims, helping other victims, not being defined by the events and that you are so much more. This is not specific to abduction, but just trauma or hardships in general. And also you're working on changing victim characterization in media. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you're doing and what exactly for people who may not know victim characterization in media means and why it's important? Yeah, so I am working with an amazing team, Lenora Claire Consulting. This is something that I had experienced, but I think sometimes we don't understand something negative that we've experienced until someone else brings light to it. Mm. So I met Lenora and I talked to her about it and I realized that I had experienced a lot of negative interactions in media where I had shared my story, you know, in an interview type format and someone would pause it and say, "Okay, can you inject a little more emotion into what you're saying? Like they wanted to sensationalize it. They wanted to make it bigger and bolder. They wanted me to unauthentically tell my story. Right now we have this like booming true crime genre where everyone wants to make themselves stand out in whatever way that is. They want to sensationalize. And so that is something that I experienced. But there's also this complex thing that's happening right now where everyone wants to do a true crime podcast or they want to do a true crime show and they want to share my story. I'll I'll just use my story as an example. Okay. So they want to share my story. They want to share my story. They don't want me to share my story. Right. They don't let me know that they're sharing my story or they do it explicitly without my permission, and then they benefit off of that. So any other situation where someone is making money off of something that you've done without giving you credit, or without consenting you, or any of those things, it would be exploitative. But we have this weird mindset, and I get people coming up against me anytime I talk about this, but it's public information. You've already told your story. 
And I said, okay, I will counter your it's public information with let's think about this as if it were a different situation. You have a girlfriend and a boyfriend, and they are about to engage in a sexual encounter. Everything has been positive, positive, positive up to a point where she says, I'm no longer okay with this. If he were to continue, it would be non-consensual and it would be criminal. So just because she consented once does not mean that the consent is universal and infinite. So just because I've consented to share my story one time does not mean that I've consented for always. So we have these situations where people are taking something that is the most personal thing to me, something that really did shape who I am, and they're sharing it for their own gain, or they're amping it up and they're not being authentic to what I experienced. For me, it irritates me, right? But I can handle it because I'm strong. I think you could take a punch or two. Yeah. Yeah. But there are so many people out there you know, media or true crime podcasters or whoever that they're doing this to that can't handle it. You know, there have been so many scenarios that I've heard of or people that I know have been personally involved in where media has done this to them and it has been very detrimental to them. It's caused mental breakdowns or it's caused further crimes to be perpetrated against them. It's the wild, wild west. There's no accountability. We're really trying to work to to get some more accountability and some more standards. That's a huge circumstance to get your arms around because it is the wild, wild west. In many ways, it's very liberating for people who are content creators. And unfortunately, like everything else, there's a, it's a double-edged sword, right? Yeah. A lot of people, unfortunately, take advantage and run with it, or they just don't know any better. Regardless of the situation, that's a huge front that you are trying to get your arms around. Yeah. So let me just first say, phew, I'm really glad I asked you to tell your own story at the start of <laughs> yeah, the thing. But I'm here, right? So I'm obviously consenting. Yes, but still, the first thing I think I said to you when I came up to you was like, I, I, I can't tell your story. Yeah. It, it's not for me to tell your story. And I just really want to be a conduit. But even then, the heartbeat of this conversation isn't about a rehash of what you went through. I want to know about the woman that you are now. I think the other thing that's really interesting is that you are using social media, which is like a lot of people sharing their pizza. I mean, I just shared it yesterday. And you are using a much lighter touch in social media to inform people about something so substantial and so life-changing. That's incredible that you are utilizing contemporary tools to kind of reach people. I think it's so needed because sometimes a heavy hammer doesn't get through. Thank you. I want to spotlight how you're using the experiences that shaped you. And I don't mean the abduction. Yeah. Certainly that was a huge thing that has made a mark on you and your life, but just your overall person, like your childhood, all of it. What are you doing to help other victims or people get to where you are? Because a lot of people do say, yeah, like well-intentioned friends and loved ones, you just got to get over it. It's been a long time. And it's so offensive to hear that. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that position and statement? And also, I don't want to gloss over what you are doing every single day to help others. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for all of that. I do agree. And I think that for me, social media was a perfect platform for me wanting to do what I wanted to do. 
which is really to change this conversation around trauma, to change how we approach these things and kind of remove some of the stigmas around it. I think that social media can very easily be a negative thing, but I think that right now people want more authenticity because the things that are out there that just you never know if something's true or not. So I think that people want more authenticity. And I think that the more they see vulnerability and authenticity, as Brene Brown says, it inspires more vulnerability and authenticity, right? So for me, social media became the perfect conduit to do that. And then I could do it in real time and people could see all of these complexities of what and who I am. The big thing that I really try to get across to people is we are complex. And when we know better, we do better. For instance, one of the things that kept me from sharing for a very long time. So I went on to work at the law enforcement agency that investigated my case. So many of the people who worked with me knew, but as new people came on, there were obviously people there that did not know about my past. And so people would be like, who's Kara? Why does she have such a nice relationship with the sheriff? Or people would ask me, well, how did you get into law enforcement? Well, that's a funny story, right? So I didn't want to tell people because their automatic response, and I think so often our automatic response is, I'm so sorry that happened to you. That literally kept me from sharing for years because it puts you in this uncomfortable situation when someone says, I'm sorry. The automatic response back is, well, it's okay. And I think it's not okay. And I think people say that because they don't know what else to say. So a big part of what I have done also is try to educate loved ones on how they can support people to become survivors and what are the words that they can use. This is a big part of what I do in my keynotes as well. So I do a lot of keynotes to law enforcement because I had experiences with law enforcement that were polar opposites where I had one person in law enforcement that was a sheriff that said a day after I was kidnapped and escaped, well, you know that guy was going to kill you, right? You should be dead right now. So like, is it true? Probably. Is it productive? Is it necessary? No. Whereas you have this other sheriff, which is the sheriff that I went on to work for, who treated me like a survivor. He told me how proud he was of me. He kept me informed of the case. A year later, he said, hey, would you like a summer job? So I try to take these lessons and help loved ones of survivors to know what are the proper things to do or what is the proper thing to do if someone does disclose something to you. Because I think the more we inspire this vulnerability and authenticity and the more we remove some of these stigmas around sexual assault, because it is shockingly common, you know someone who has been sexually assaulted, the likelihood of someone disclosing to you at some point is very high giving people the correct response helps anyone who does come forward to feel confidence. So instead of saying something like, I'm so sorry that happened and turning the attention back on yourself, I'm so sorry. You can just say, wow, thank you so much for sharing that with me. Thank you for considering me safe enough to share that. Or if it's an appropriate response, like just I believe you. You don't have to say necessarily always the words, I believe you, but conveying belief in what they feel is their truth. I think it just goes such a long way into helping people to move from a victim to a survivor. I understand people are well-intentioned. Absolutely. But that seemingly small pivot that you just said goes from, you know, almost pity, but I don't have a good word for it. 
Yeah. That's how I felt. But that's how I felt. People would say, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, I don't want you to feel sorry for me because I don't feel sorry for me. So it stopped me from sharing. I remember sitting down with Elizabeth Smart and she interviewed me and she said, you know, well, why do you want to share now? I said, well, Elizabeth, I didn't share for a very long time because there's a look people give you when they first hear your story. And I said, you know the look, Elizabeth? And she said, oh, I know the look. Something changes in their eyes and it feels like pity. And I know that people are well-meaning. I know that no one would ever intend to hurt me. But I think that by having these difficult conversations and giving people the words that are supportive, really, you know, if someone discloses something very difficult like that to you, you don't want the focus to be on you and how you feel. You want it to be on them. And you want them to know that you are there for them in any way, shape, or form. Empowering people, it's really as simple. You just have to know the words to do it. Yeah, and I think many people don't. And I think the other interesting thing is, I guess I'm glad that you said that it is pity in some ways, but when someone says that to you and they give you that look, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to ever put words in your mouth, Kara. So you could totally tell me that I'm way off base. But when someone says, oh, I'm so sorry, it's a little bit like it's now your responsibility to comfort that person. Yeah, The ball is in your court to make that person feel okay. Whereas the suggestion that you just said, that seemingly small change in perspective or approach, you're validating that person's experience that just disclosed a massive story, like life-changing story. And for someone else to validate that instead of putting that responsibility on the person that just disclosed this huge event, you're taking that burden off of the person that just told you something incredibly personal to have to make you feel better. Mm -hmm. You're actually validating that person and saying, oh my God, I hear you. It says something to you about how they feel about you because they felt safe enough to tell you. Exactly. You nailed it. No, you nailed it. I mean, I've gotten to the point now where I can correct them, which is, I think, an important point where people will ask me, how did you get to the point where you could share? Or what advice do you have for people who want to share? I say, well, you need to share when it becomes a scar and when it's not a wound, because people are going to injure you if it's still a wound. If you just had abdominal surgery, you're not going to go out and roller skate, Kara, right? I've gotten to the point where someone will still well-meaningly say, I'm so sorry that happened. And I'll say, I'm not actually sorry because it's what made me who I am. But thank you for the sentiment. I can respond accordingly in that moment that I understood what they were trying to convey, but kind of correct that mindset a little bit. I just think it's a shit ton of work that you have to do. It is. (laughs) Constantly looking at you that way and then says, I'm so sorry. Because again, the work then falls in your court to be like, it's okay, I'm okay. And then go through this whole thing. Right. It's fine. I'm fine. We're fine. I'm totally normal, well-adjusted human. (laughs) I think the fact that you're continuing to take that one step forward or multiple steps forward to lift others up with this horrific experience is incredible. Thank you so much. And that's kind of what I've always felt and hoped to be. I always felt like this was something that happened for a reason, which I know is so cliche. I don't think that things happen for a reason necessarily. But I think that if we reframe the way we think about things, 
we can very often find reason in most things that happen to us. Sometimes it takes a while to find that reason. But I think that for me, I always felt an intuition that this happened to me so that I could help others. And that has looked different over the years. And five years from now, it might look different as well. But I'm just honored to be out here doing this and helping people. I feel so honored the messages that I get regularly of people who they say I've inspired them or I've changed their life. It's just such an honor to say, oh, me? Oh, okay, thank you. And that's what I hope to do. But I'm just doing my best. (laughs) Yes. So listen, I ask every single guest to do a signature sign off. And it is time for me to ask you to do that. So Kara, will you let me know who you are and what you represent? Yes. My name is Kara Chamberlain. And I represent that you absolutely are not defined by the bad things that happen to you. You get to pick where you go and who you become after anything that happens. I'm still blown away with Kara and her mental fortitude that would challenge even the strongest person. I want to thank Kara for sharing this part of her life, how she continues to support others, and how she shows all of us that we too can overcome hardships. Next up, the rep and true crime wave continues. We have Dave Reichert, the lead detective, who for 19 years chased down the Green River killer, Gary Ridgway. Check out this clip of what Dave saw at the crime scene. Marsha Chapman, however, who was face up, she was placed on her back, one arm pinned and one arm free. And the one arm was waving in the water. Thought passed through my mind that she's, she was she was waving, saying, here I am. Hello, my name is Dave Riker. I'm a retired sheriff, retired congressman, and I'm coming to Reppin. His stories will blow you away, so don't miss it. Check out all of my social posts on Twitter at Reppin Podcast and Instagram at Reppin underscore podcast. But don't stop there. Subscribe, share, and leave a review. And some great news for you guys. You can listen and download all the previous episodes, which is on all the top platforms. Thanks to the craziest, most bougie editor on the planet, Mr. Nelson Pinero, for putting that extra shine on these episodes. Thanks to the Queen of Posh, Gracie Kong, for her love and light. And thanks to all of you for listening and being a proponent for inclusivity, equality, and representation. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.